0: This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean has a PhD in computer science, was a postdoctoral student at Stanford's Medical School, and is an ex-Googler and startup founder, now serving as head of developer relations at Skyflow, an architectural solution for data privacy. Sean has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization, quantum computing, developer experience, to data privacy. You can find more of his work by following him on Twitter, at Sean Falconer. Cloud computing provides tools, storage, servers, and software products through the internet. Securing these resources is a constant process for companies deploying new code to their cloud environments. It's easy to overlook security flaws because company applications are very complex, and many people work together to develop them. Wise Labs, for example, had millions of users' data stolen due to a mistake by a single employee. The company Bridgecrew is a cloud security platform helping to prevent mistakes like that from happening. Bridgecrew integrates into developer workloads to automatically find infrastructure errors in cloud accounts, workloads, and infrastructure as code. Their platform also monitors code reviews and builds pipelines to prevent errors from being deployed into production. If an error is found, then BridgeCrew Software reverts that code back to its last known correct state. In today's episode, we talk to Guy Eisencott, VP of Product and Co-Founder at BridgeCrew. Guy previously worked as a Principal Product Manager at RSA Security and as a Product Manager at FortScale before that. We discuss Infrastructure as Code, DevSecOps, Cloud Security, Software Supply Chain, and Composition Analysis.
1: Guy, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Happy to be back. Great. Yeah, I know it's been a while. It has been a couple of years.
2: Yeah, so I think given that it's been several years, and I'm sure a ton of things have changed on your end, I think that you know, kick things off. Can you start by introducing yourself and maybe share a little bit about your backstory?
1: Yes, absolutely. So hi, my name is Guy Eisenkahn. I was up until very recently the co-founder and the VP of products for Bridge Group, and we will mention Bridge Group in a sec. We were acquired by Palo Alto Networks in 2021, and ever since, I lead product for Prisma Cloud in a a subcategory called Code Security. Prior to founding Bridge Crew, I've built products in the machine learning space and the analytics as well. And generally, I can say that I've been trying to solve human problems with data as long as I can remember. So I'm formerly not a developer. I actually majored in history and economics, but I've been building foundational software for the past ten years.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. I think you have a really interesting, you know, depth of, of background across a lot of different parts of both from like an engineering standpoint as well as in product. So I think this will be a fascinating conversation today. Yes.
1: Looking forward to.
2: Yeah. So you know, Bridgecrew embeds security directly into the development lifecycle across the you know a few different areas to make it easy for essentially developers to secure infrastructure as they build it. And I think in order to talk about how you do some of these types of things and some of the products that you offer, I think it makes sense to maybe start out by talking about infrastructure as code for anyone that might be a little bit unfamiliar with it. You know, infrastructure as code. I think you know it's been around for a while, but the growth and interest, both in I think DevOps and the movement to cloud, it feels like awareness and excitement in this field is really on a fast growth path. And companies are are starting to utilize frameworks like Terraform and CloudFormation to build, change, and version cloud and on-prem resources. Why do you think this sort of shift has happened and what value do these frameworks provide to a business?
1: I'll give you a bit of a backstory. One of my co-founders, actually the technical one, taught me something very profound in our previous company. And it's been like a light tower for me ever ever since. It's something foundational about uh, software development, which is building good new products, not necessarily sustaining the existing ones, actually means to be constantly in a state of migration. And that's a really deep way to understand how software engineering has changed and, and what infrastructure as code and Terraform had to do with it. So when you think about the adoption of infrastructure as code, it's really a brainchild of that mentality. If you want to make you know the absolute most of a modern application stack and use modern development practices that allow you to build very fast and ship very fast, you eventually need to be able to adapt and change effortlessly. And what Terraform allows, and any infrastructure as code framework is, is a decent substitute to that, Terraform just being you know, a community project it manifests that even more, is that it unlocks that for a growing part of the application stack. It reduces huge friction by abstracting something that we all use today when we build a modern web application, which is cloud provider APIs. And by providing us a single configuration surface, through either a new programming language or an existing programming language that uh, uh, invokes infrastructure as code on the backend, it just goes well beyond what you need uh, to be able to run a modern web application. So to sum that up, I think for a growing business, the utilization of infrastructure as code is is almost a mandatory prerequisite for building something that new. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I love that idea of the constant state of migration. So one of the th- great things, I think, about some of the specific cloud providers like AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, and so on, is that they do provide these fairly easy dashboards where like a non-expert in infrastructure can create cloud services, adjust permissions, provision servers, and so on, with just a few button clicks. And essentially, does infrastructure as code need to live separately from that? You know, Can these things coexist, or is this something where if you're choosing, essentially, infrastructure as code, then you don't want to you rely on the UI tools because things are essentially going to get out of sync.
1: That's actually one of the most beautiful aspects of modern infrastructure as code is that it can be both. It can be a path to migrate from an existing legacy infrastructure to a net new stack. It can allow you to be a, a fully blank canvas where you can build you know, an application for, from scratch for, for asset bridge group. I can say that in multiple life cycles of development uh, throughout the product history, we've you know essentially built large portions of it from scratch. After improvements and enhancements were introduced to the then AWS services that we use, just ways that we could simplify the things that we did previously. So I think the benefit is not only you know the fact that you can use this very simple and intuitive programming language, and not you know whatever the dashboards and the UI. It also caters to what you've already done previously. It can work on top of it. It can work aside it, and it can fully replace the way that you've configured and provisioned the infrastructure previously.
2: Mm-hmm. So obviously, like companies like like Google and Netflix, you know, Facebook, other famous technology companies, and even what we consider like a traditional tech start- startup are using a lot of these techniques around infrastructure as code. But is this something that you're also seeing? You know, a non-traditional technology company adopt as well, like a company like Walmart or Target, they probably have fairly large tech department, but aren't exactly what you think of when you think of like technology innovators. Are these types of companies also migrating in this way?
1: A large portion of them are. We're seeing, so, so right now, I think I have an interesting purview now that we're part of this uh, huge global enterprise called Palo Alto Networks. It secures probably up to, you know, more than 70,000 customers globally. Our division handles a subset of them. And you can see two classes of engineering teams. One is the classic you mentioned, the born in the cloud, the fast pacing, and actually, you know, the easy sell people who understand that this is just the way that uh, they can utilize the most of their cloud infrastructure. And then there's another camp, which is, you know, the digital transformation camp. And actually, these are some of the biggest, you know, names and brands in the world where there's a group of people that understands the value, but then there's another group of people that's very dedicated to, you know, continuing to serve what I'll call the traditional, the legacy infrastructure. So for those digital transformation companies, they're even more excited about infrastructure as code because it just allows them to reduce some of the friction and get more people on board and more people excited to adopt some of these development best practices.
2: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, when we talk about you know starting to think about like, security when it comes to infrastructure as code, what are some of the common mistakes that like a team makes when managing security for frameworks like Terraform or CloudFormation or others?
1: I think one common misconception is not to realize that uh, infrastructure as code is just like any other programming language. It follows the same design patterns and it effectively carries the same types of risks. But on one hand, it offers structures that allow developers to define what they want to build, which is exactly the same if you compare it to a node or a Java application. And they allow you to build individual instances of artifacts, usually pretty straightforward with you know a mirror, you know, a 10 lines of code, you can now build scalable databases on a global infrastructure. And, and that's pretty cool. From a security perspective, the main challenge is defining how those instances of infrastructure talk to each other and how those connects in two planes that are usually the ones where most of the mistakes happen. One is the network plane, the other is the identity plane. Not to say one is more complex or interesting than the other, that actually varies between cloud providers, but that's definitely something that's been a growing concern for a large portion of the you know, Terraform Cloud Formation developer community since cloud providers have provided a lot of good defaults to get your cloud infrastructure up and running. Those good defaults make things talk to each other and connect pretty regularly, but they're not really designed to be optimized for security concerns. So unless you're building a you know a payment application and you have to adhere to very strict segmentation rules and laws, most of us that are building enterprise software have to kind of you know work against um, intuition and understand and get familiar with the limitations of each and every type of cloud service and then when we do our job well, we get to an end state where identity and networking are defined to serve the business and make the application work, but they're also serving the purpose of making sure that my application that actually runs on the internet doesn't have things that are exposed to it and could potentially become compromised by that.
2: So in these situations where companies are using infrastructure as code, you know something like Terraform, who is typically responsible within that organization for these security concerns is that the the security team or is that going to be shifted to like a the devops team or or even potentially with the application engineering team
1: i've been fascinated by that question for the past 3 years ever since founding Bridge grew. one of our early but very profound experiences going out to the market and trying to educate ourselves about how traditional security teams the one that do corporate security are now ingesting this new task of uh, implementing security controls is learning that not only is there a knowledge gap, but there is a pretty substantial access gap. Socks, you know, three years ago, four four years ago, didn't have access keys and good familiarity with the ways you access a, a cloud console to be able to even collect logs or, you know, iterate after the fact. So it's interesting to see that what was supposed to be a security concern turned out to be something that's concerning to different types of organizations. Development organization has some roles and responsibilities, then security has some roles and responsibilities, and and the emergence of DevOps and DevSecOps has created additional people in the organization that are now interested in making sure that when infrastructure is built, it's done through a CACD pipeline and that there's proper controls validating the changes that are being made. So long story short, it's a lot of different people. I had, up until, I don't know, a year and a half ago, probably pre-COVID, almost two and a half years, I had this ambition or hope that we start to see more centralized infrastructure and platform engineering group form, where the understanding is that this is such an important job that organizations will form dedicated organizations within their engineering groups that are in charge of secure packaging and distribution of pre-made secure defaults and templates. And that's something we've seen in the financial sector and somewhat in in the IT sector as well. And I thought this would just you know, spread like wildfire. But I think for a variety of reasons, that process actually slowed down. We've been talking to our peers at AWS and Google Cloud to see what they think of this. And they, they're also agreeing that instead of infrastructure as code security becoming this own thing that small group of people is very interested in and excited about, it's now become much more apparent that you know larger and less dedicated engineers are getting tasked with working with these types of frameworks. What's the danger of tasking
2: those teams with this responsibility?
1: There's a few. I think the biggest one would be how easy it is to make a mistake, so even before you know we go to the specific types of use cases, there's something about cloud infrastructure that breaks down a lot of the organizational barriers that uh development developers had previously. I mean think about how infrastructure is code, which is you know again ten lines to deploy a multi-region instance of a database that can now store personal information of your customers and if, you know this is literally 10 lines of code with probably 30 or 40 different types of attributes you can toggle around with it's really common to see that those 10 lines of code don't necessarily contain the i don't know five six seven complete best practices for deploying that set of infrastructure and and essentially if there's no guardrails along the way you know we'll see developers that are even security aware, not necessarily aware of all the different knobs and switches within a specific type of implementation that uh, the cloud provider has exposed for them. So
2: this is probably, I think a good time to start to talk about BridgeCrew and some of the the products and services that you offer. So how does BridgeCrew help prevent people from making some of these common infrastructure as code security mistakes that you've mentioned?
1: BridgeCrew essentially pioneered what I'll call crowdsourcing and standardizing infrastructure's code security. So when we founded the company in 2019, we saw companies of all sizes struggle to implement security controls for both, you know, centralized governance, security, and compliance reasons into their application development. And and essentially, we've built software, open and commercial, to educate the market on its importance. One of the projects that I'm most proud of is, is not our most popular one. It's a training project. It's called the Terago. And it allows people to uh, download a local instance of infrastructure's code configurations from different types of frameworks, and then to see if their existing pipelines will prevent them from pushing that code into production. So that's something we we've believed in fairly early on, and we've kind of built our, our entire town vision on how we can now educate the the security market and then educate developers on just using the right tools to be able to mitigate as much as possible and then prevent as much as possible some of these mistakes forever and in getting into production.
2: Mm-hmm. And you, you originally founded a company in 2019, which is not that long ago, but even in the in these few years, have you seen sort of a change in the understanding and awareness of these potential security issues when it comes to infrastructure as code deployments?
1: Oh, absolutely, uh- I think not in even one specific instance. I think there were a few waves. The first wave was around that time when the company just got off the ground and it wasn't just us. It was a few other similar open source projects that have made it. And this is where the cloud security community gets a lot of credit for not only being able to, yeah, you know, we, we do great conferences, but we also build a lot of internal tools and we open source them. And there is just this very dedicated group of a few thousand developers worldwide that are that have encountered problems since the early 2010s and instead of you know writing a blog about it they just build tools that solve it and and we were very inspired by those tools and and i think starting 2019 those tools have really started to catch on and standardize just the sheer understanding of uh, what a misconfiguration in the cloud is and what are the best ways to mitigate it it's not just creating alerts or or building Jira tickets, that there's an opportunity here to build a very efficient and automatic workflow to prevent developers from ever pushing that bad code into production.
2: Yeah, I love that idea of uh, really baking in the best practices so essentially mistakes don't happen.
1: Exactly. And and one last comment on that is, I think there was a second wave about a year and a half ago that was sparked by a few very high-profile disclosures of misconfigurations that were conducted by the cloud providers themselves. So this is where researchers from Palo Alto or from a few other very similar product research groups like Quiz and Orca and Lightspeed, interestingly enough, some of them operate from the same building block as BridgeCrew, have been able to identify pretty staggering instances where AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure have failed to correctly configure different types of infrastructure and open the cloud services themselves for abuse. In those cases, infrastructure as code would not have necessarily been the, the optimal solution, but it did do a lot to raise the awareness that infrastructure is this now new front in cybersecurity. And as a up-and-coming topic, it does have its standards and best practices that help you prevent some of the exposure that comes in from that type of risk as well. And
2: mm-hmm. checkoff is is open source policy as code tool that scans things like my my Terraform template for these security issues. So... Can you walk me through like, how I would go about like, using Chekhov and integrating that into my infrastructure's code deployment? And what are the outcomes? Is this like a pass-fail, like a unit test? Or it sounds like this is probably something a little bit more
1: nuanced than that. It's both. So the nice uh, thing about Chekhov is that it does follow two design patterns. One is that it really is constructed like a testing tool on one side. But on the other, it's built like a lot of the cloud terminals and CLI tools we use to provision infrastructure. So it, it brings in some of the logic and the design principles that you've seen in tools like Terraform, Packer, Salt, Ansible, Puppet, which our users are very familiar with. And on the other hand, they just play very nicely with tools like you know, CI, CD tools like CircleCI CI and Jenkins and Azure DevOps and AWS's code build and just the ability to run as an ephemeral job that looks at your code and provides a very straightforward uh, set of results that, you know, as you said, a path fail and some context for the developer to untangle, but in a, in an interface and in a UI that they understand. So generally, there's two operational patterns. One is just a baseline, so you can either download Chekhov locally or run it from uh, any Docker, scan your code and get a pretty robust report about every imaginable misconfiguration you can think of. So it started with infrastructure as code, but it does image analysis and it does finds vulnerabilities in, in open source package managers and it finds secret and it's, it's gone well beyond that. But you can do that against your existing code base. You get a nice report and you can essentially get a, a good grip on what that repository is potentially in risk of. And then the more common operational flow is to include Chekhov in a CI pipeline. You can include it in, let's take Jenkins as an example, as a new choreographed, synchronized job in Jenkins that run usually in a staging environment, pre deploy post deploy doesn't really matter. And it just performs a set of checks on all of the configured and changed code. So instead of getting that full report on all your existing repo, you get the results only to what's changed in this specific run and then whether that's be the developer that now pushes this CI job or tries to push a side branch into the main branch depending on the branching strategy they get this report as they evaluate other unit tests and outcomes from their CI/CD system and gives them as much context as they need whether to uh, you know ignore the problem or to solve it so how much
2: i guess knowledge and experience does a typical user of Check off need in order to use the tool properly?
1: So, so that's the beauty of it. There's two types of checkoff users. There's the, you can, can call it the evangelist, and then there's a passive user. The The evangelist is usually the, the person that brings this uh, tool into the, into the pipeline. This is usually someone from either a security or a DevOps background. They'll need to have some basic familiarity with infrastructure as code to be convinced that the result is good enough to be included in the standard uh, CI practice and also in how the pipelines are configured in order, in order to make sure that outputs are printed in the right steps and and the reports are viewed by the right people. Passive user, which I think is the more interesting of the two, really doesn't need to know anything about infrastructure as code, just like they don't need to know everything about everything else they, that gets tested using during CI. And that's what's nice about that second second workflow. So after that initial baseline has happened, Any developer that understands programming can then see a printed version of a Chekhov result. It will then highlight what security control has failed. It will provide a link to a guideline, a public documentation that we write and open source as part of Chekhov that includes the logic of that test, why it failed and potential remediations. And then they can decide, and and effectively they see a printout of the code snippet that has been misconfigured. And then taking those three aspects into account, they can decide whether to resolve using the recommendation that we provided, seek out another recommendation on Google or Stack Overflow, or disregard the result, print out a skip comment, and continue to the next test.
2: Okay, so if I understand that correctly, basically there's probably someone, like a DevOps person, that's doing the initial sort of integration setup. And then as that's integrated in the CI/CD, all of the application engineers are essentially going to be utilizing that framework because it's it's based into the CI C D and that'll create this report where they can catch these errors and make adjustments as, as needed. Is that correct? That's accurate. Yes. And then you know in terms of best practices, are there already best practices for like common infrastructure combinations and in, in challenges baked into the system? I imagine that there's, you know, so many different ways that you can you know create these different cloud resources and, and combine them in different ways and have different levels of access. How is that sort of managed? How do you keep essentially the system up to date with these different combinations and the best practices around them?
1: So there's two parts to that question. So one is, what are we actually enforcing? That's actually based on common frameworks that we as an industry have developed over the past, I would say even 10 years, going, going stretching that back as, as far as virtualization, standardization has begun. So if you think about, you know, CIS benchmarks, and there's a, a bunch of them, but different types of bodies that we have decided to trust have given us this initial checklist of items we should look at before provisioning new infrastructure. And cloud providers themselves have gone a long way in providing frameworks to make decisions about how infrastructure should eventually be configured when it goes to production. And it follows a few basic patterns that you would usually look at things like Making sure that, again, networking and identity usually go come up first. This is networking just to prevent that your infrastructure isn't exposed to the public internet. Identity that only people that should be able to access your services are able to access. And then there's a long tail of additional verifications that a, a well-architected manifest should follow. These include things like ensuring that uh, encryption is properly configured for databases or data in motion infrastructure like uh, queues and kafkas and these sorts of services we want to make sure that logging is used consistently each service now packs on its own logging sub tools so sometimes we need to have additional checks that look to see that the required logging controls are are in place monitoring on top of those logs that's also something that we define in infrastructure as code and a few more one other big one is the Correct use of secrets, environment variables, user and passwords, right? These infrastructure components eventually need to be communicating with each other. They need to share secrets to make sure that that's done in a way that doesn't expose those secrets when those in, once those infrastructure components are spun up. So, those are like six to seven examples of the types of failed issues that a Terraform file going through check of might, uh, might not pass. Your second question, which was also interesting, was how do we make sure that we, we continue to keep this up to date and when we started Chekhov three years ago, we had this expectation that we develop or build some in-house research and build out some expertise around what should be these controls that are implemented based on customer base and discussions with the community, etc. something very different happened instead of us building that, we built something like the first hundred or two hundred policies the next 1,800 were vastly contributed by the community. We just found that you know people are building in such different manners using existing infrastructure that our ability to track, what is it, like 10,000 different discrete cloud provider APIs and about 500 different types of cloud provider services be- between Amazon, Google, and, and Microsoft, just an impossible task for a single team. So that's the part that was crowdsourced, and most of the policies are now managed and tested through our community validation process that happens on on a public Git Git repo.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think one thing that I I did want to mention is that you have uh, from the beginning invested in open sourcing some of the tools and technologies that you built. Why was essentially making those tools open source important to you and and the rest of the sort of the founding team at Bridgecrew?
1: Right. So for, Two main reasons. One was that we have a very deep and, and almost philosophical relationship with open source. We've used open source in our previous company. We've used open source extensively when we build the foundations for, for Bridge Group. We use cloud security tools that uh, the community has curated and helped us both learn and, and cater to some of the use cases that we saw in the market. And also our stack, naturally, was built out of, uh, of open source. Who can, who can build a modern application without open source? So when it came time to decide whether or not Chekhov should be open source, we asked ourselves, "What's your goal?" And you know the main or the deciding factor for open-sourcing Chekhov was an understanding that this is a problem that every developer will eventually have, and open-sourcing a tool that helps them solve it probably does the best service to educate the market and make sure that this use case gets the right attention. That was the original call over time, we saw that there's other benefits of building a community around an open source tool as a commercial company and when you know When, when we made the decision to join Palo Alto, we learned that not only do we have that vision, but also our senior executives at this company understand that and and I think that vision has been uh, one of the main contributing factors to its uh, success as a code scanner and now much more than that
2: yeah, it's awesome I mean it sounds like even from just the sheer scale of the number of ways people can configure infrastructure, having those community contributions back to check off, to incorporate best practices and incorporate you know, the growth in cloud that as a single company you can never keep up with is, is amazing and, and probably makes for an overall better product for everyone.
1: Absolutely. I can't agree more on that statement.
2: So one new area that you're helping companies address security needs is with the software supply chain. And just so we can set appropriate context for this topic for our listeners, can you first explain what is the software supply chain?
1: I have my own definition. I think one of the problem with the emerging space in the security cybersecurity market is that people create their own definitions, but I have my own. I hope it helps. But the software supply chain problem and, and where this is coming into the discourse is a growing understanding that as because we build infrastructure and as we build it in a distributed fashion with global teams that are essentially located anywhere. We need to be much more cautious and aware of what uh, dependencies are used as part of that uh, construction process. Not only what are the programming languages that we introduce, we need to have a much more consistent and better grasp of what open source we use, what's the infrastructure that we use to deploy, to package, to compile, and to ship that infrastructure. And also to have a way to consolidate that into a single threat model that recognizes those supply chains are actually pretty powerful applications that have access both to our source code and also to our runtime environment. And just by that fact, they're becoming a target for external actors that think uh, that's a good way to either steal that data or get access to our customers' data as well.
2: Yeah, I think one of the security areas that are sometimes often overlooked is something as simple as as someone's, you know, VCS or version control system. We spend all this time thinking about code security and data security and, you know, even infrastructure security. But essentially, if a bad actor has access to our actual source code, a lot of that security is probably mute. So in terms of some of the things that BridgeCrew is doing around software supply chain, how does... BridgeCrew help companies essentially secure the combination of their CI/CD and their version control system and also other parts of the software supply chain?
1: This is a hard problem to solve. I won't claim that BridgeCrew solved this. But again, if if I go back to uh, Palo Alto Networks understands this, they've seen, you know, the solar wings attack unfold, you know, covering it from various angles and, and naturally with large corporations, like even like Microsoft getting hit, this has become center stage. BridgeCrew's role... In this not just to look at the code, as you mentioned, to see that the code is using proper best practices, is go beyond essentially anything that you use in order to compile and ship that code. And the layered approach means that we'll allow in our open source to scan things like version control system configurations. So if you run Chekhov against your GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket configuration sets, we've prepackaged probably. About twenty out of the box rules that make sure that you're using their security best practices, the things that they preach to, the things that they do when they build out uh, new repositories. And then the second part of it, it's also in Chekhov, is verifying that CI/CD systems are configured correctly. So things like GitHub Actions and Circle CI and Argo CD, these are not only CI/CD systems that help you automate your delivery pipeline, but again, these are very powerful. You know, they have very powerful applications that have a lot of access to your uh, code and your cloud, and they also have the ability to get invoked automatically. So just imagine what happens if someone identifies the misconfigurations that let them slid in. Those are pretty much the simple uh, use cases, just, you know, ensuring the posture of your version control and your CI CD systems. And then if you use the BridgeCrew platform, you get the benefit of continuous verification of the appearance of different types of vulnerabilities within that infrastructure stack. So we'll detect if your GitHub Action is using a vulnerable version of a a popular distribution of an image, right? So you may be running Jenkins or you may be running GitHub Actions, but it's running on a vulnerable image. We we'll detect that and flag that as a potential CICD risk. And obviously the combinations, right? So what happens if a misconfigured VCS now has access to a vulnerable... CI system that's able to ship code through a open source registry that just has outdated packages that are now vulnerable to new kinds and new variants of vulnerabilities that eventually get shipped into your cloud environment and that has you know, publicly accessible infrastructure. So, from a threat modeling and a, even a threat hunting perspective, we, you'll get some of that visibility in BridgeCrew and you'll be able to essentially backcast or backtrace all of those risks to the source. and hopefully even fix them with the right configuration sets.
2: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, there's like 20 best practices for, is this sort of like baked in for securing version control systems. What's an example of some of these best practices?
1: There's a few very silly, not, not silly, but very simple ones. I Think of things like identity security. You have this for any SaaS, but some of these are just not toggled by default for, for some of these. So just require 2FA. That's a configuration you need to opt in for your repository on GitHub. For companies that use SSO, uh, you can check if SSO is used on each and every repository. GitHub allows you to write a rule to make sure that developers can only access it using a dedicated set of uh, IPs if you're using something like a VPN or Bastion to access that. And one other big recurring aspect is what's called branch protection rules. And all of the VCS providers now offer this in some variation, but what branch protection rules is essentially they are a set of controls that can be toggled on and off. Essentially, the code commit, code review, and code merge processes are all governed through a set of specifically defined explicit controls. So only collaborators with distinct access can make sure that new code is introduced into the system. So... Without branch protection rules, for example, for an open source repo, anyone from the internet can push new code into your repo. In closed Mm -hmm. environment, you want only, you know, you can define something that's called a code owner. That's only specific sets of people have access to specific sets of code. The simple configuration that everybody should be looking out for now when they go into GitHub search for branch protection rules, just toggle them all on 99%. That's all you need. But for bigger and larger environments, you should be looking at code owners as well.
2: And does any of this additional security to like CICD or, or the version control system impact performance in a meaningful way?
1: Give me a sec to think about it. Performance is a wide topic. I think there's definitely, just in terms of developer velocity, yes, there's a cost to pay here. So let's take one example, you know, that's close to home. If you run Chekhov on a large enough repository, it could take probably between 30 seconds up to probably five minutes. It's the longest run I've seen. To get the results from that scan, so if we scan hundred thousands of files, it could take probably a good uh, five, six, ten minutes for that scan to end, and that's only what Chekhov scans. Whereas you know, unit tests and integration tests and everything else that you have going on. So on that aspect, there's definitely a cost to pay in terms of developer efficacy. I would say, as for actual performance of the application, you know, latency, lag, runtime, no, not specifically, nothing, nothing you should be concerned about, nothing that I can think mm-hmm. of. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a good distinction, and I think one other thing that is, would probably be interesting for us to talk about is that you've recently started to move beyond purely securing infrastructure, but also expanding into application security, specifically software composition analysis. And, you know, if you're listening and you're unfamiliar with software composition analysis, essentially the process of identifying open source software within a code base. Can you talk about why you're entering this new vertical?
1: Yeah, so I think back in uh, 2021, we called out internally and then externally in in where we, you know, we publicly talk how the lines between infrastructure and application are becoming blurred. And this notion came about with, you know, naturally a lot of, you know, big ticket disclosures for vulnerabilities in the supply chain, including Log4j and, you know, the month and a half it uh, it took to really resolve and get to a proper resolution. And when you think about, you know, that blurred line between infrastructure and application, you you also remember that it's not only open source that you've decided to use and, and you know, you've made a conscious decision to embrace some of that adhered risk. There's just so many dependencies today that it's really hard to keep track of when you use managed infrastructure. So when, you know, when I use a service like EKS, that Amazon runs Kubernetes for me, or, or I use ElastiCache, which runs Redis for me, or I use you know, the different flavors of those open sources on the variety of cloud providers, I am accepting risk from those dependencies, regardless to what my software composition analysis tool is flagging up for me. And, and that became very apparent in the Log4J instance, when we started to dis- discover that not only do the cloud providers run Log4J in a bunch of instances for us, they're taking a very long time to patch it. So I think that sunk in, and that's around the point that we decided to take some of the internal efforts that we had around composition analysis and make them external. And we've decided to to go about this in our own take. There's naturally an advantage to go into software composition analysis in in 2022. If you went into this and you built an SCA company three, four, or five years ago, it was much harder with the package managers themselves. So think of, think NPM, PyPy, Yarn, RubyGems they had much less publicly accessible APIs that allow you to discover those dependencies. And those APIs just have become very open and very transparent. So it's much easier for us now to not only analyze NPM, which is an NPM package, which is something that we've done for almost a year and a half now, but also to untangle all of its dependencies and build out a full-blown dependency tree using their existing registry APIs. So Long story short, yes, we definitely understood that infrastructure is not only uh, vulnerable, but also a huge part of AppSec. And we decided to build a software composition analysis that reflects the value it should provide to customers in 2022.
2: Yeah, it seems like the timing for a product like this is kind of perfect to now between instances like the Log4J instance, where I think this is gonna be a top of mind for a lot of people. And then also, as you mentioned, these package managers opening up these APIs actually make the technology of software composition analysis in the sense actually possible.
1: Absolutely. And and I think as always in cybersecurity, you have to have a combination of people understanding the risk and the other end, bad people that are utilizing the opportunities and trying to take, take the advantage of them. Again, I think both independent researchers, as well as just attacks that were disclosed, have, have done a very good job in Advocating for why this market is ripe for disruption. So,
2: you know, obviously there's been these new product investments that you've made, and it's been a couple of years since you're on the show. And, and one of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times is that last year you were acquired by Palo Alto Networks and you're now part of Prism Cloud. So, how has that changed your product or, or areas of focus?
1: I'll surprise you. I think what hasn't really changed is the roadmap. Uh, the roadmap has stayed pretty consistent. If I look at the one that uh, we presented to Palo Alto back in in early 2021, we've executed on, on most of it, if not exceeded a large part of it, uh, just because of the added resources. There is a difference being part of uh, Prisma Cloud and Palo Alto since uh, eventually it's a, you know, it's a, I'll call it a category a formation company. Palo Alto, you know, we disrupted the firewall space 20 years ago. It, it's been disrupting corporate security for the past 10 years doing probably six or seven big acquisitions. And for cloud security, it's been the standard. It's it's acquired six companies up until until now, we're number six. And by virtue of those acquisitions, it's essentially defining what is cloud security. So when you see this space grow and you see, you know, what the competitors versus what the market is looking after, you should be keeping an eye on Prisma Cloud because it it is a very thoughtful group of people that's been doing cloud security for the past six or seven years on a corporate scale. And they you know, I've learned a lot just by observing decision-making and the understanding that this market just brings in huge opportunity to be a market leader.
2: That's awesome. I'm happy to hear that the acquisition from your perspective is is working out. I know acquisitions can be very challenging and sometimes don't always work out the way that you had hoped they would be. So, you know, as we, we start to wrap up here, is there anything else that you think is important for the audience to know?
1: Let's maybe spend a minute and talk about the future. I think future is bright for application developers specifically. I think, you know, when we talk to prospective customers, we meet people that are early in their journey into the cloud, people that are probably in their what is it, third, fourth, fifth year building a, a cloud application and you know, coming in from a technical background, not being a developer myself, but just, you know, doing software for so long, I'm just seeing the opportunity as such a blessing for someone in this industry. And not only can you pursue a career in application security or in application development, but you can really use the publicly available resources that are made available by companies like BridgeCrew, companies like Palo Alto, and a lot of other great contributors from Google, Microsoft, Azure, and a variety of more. You just become exposed and educate yourself and be able to build out a career in this industry. And if anyone's interested in, in how we've done it and, and how we're planning to go forward from here, I'll, I'll be happy to, to have uh, those conversations. You can reach me out on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and follow up.
2: Awesome. I think that's a a great place to leave it today. So thank you, Guy, for coming on the show. I think this was a fascinating conversation and I'm really excited to see what's next for you.
1: Thank you, Sean. Have a continued great rest of your day.